Everyone has a story, and more and more people are preserving, celebrating, and sharing their life stories through legacy videos. What are legacy videos, and how can they benefit you and your family? You'll find answers to these questions and more here in the Legacy Video Lounge podcast. Now, here's your host, award-winning legacy video producer and president of Family Legacy Video, Steve Pender. Welcome to the Legacy Video Lounge podcast. In this episode, the final part of a four-part series, Tucson news reporter and magazine feature writer Elena Acoba and I finish up our chat about the legacy video production process. So I imagine that um, probably a lot of people have not told stories or spoken in front of a camera and they may feel a little uncomfortable about that whole studio setup or interview setup. How do you make them feel comfortable so that they become a little bit more natural when they're speaking in front of a camera? First and foremost, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to underline it, is that you know storytellers are not talking to a camera, you know. They're speaking to me, so we're having a conversation. Now, yes, you can't hide the fact that you've got one or two cameras at least, you've got lights, you've got other crew people there. But I found time and time again that as we get into our conversation and folks start telling their stories, that those kind of drop away into the background. Yeah, they're there, but it's, it's, it doesn't inhibit people in any way uh, from speaking with me. We've talked about the pre-interview, so that's, that's an important part of, of, of their preparation as well. One of the things that is produced as a result of the pre-interview are the questions that we use during the interview because they're, they're customized to each storyteller. So we all know what the game plan is, you know, what we're going to be talking about. We're all on the same page that way. Not to say that we can't go off on a tangent occasionally because stories do bubble up even during the interview. It's not uncommon for me to hear somebody say, oh, I haven't thought about that in years. You know, so that, that happens. But having those questions, we can always fall back to them once we've explored whatever the, the new subject was. So that pre-interview is, is part of that process and, and, it, and, and that helps lend to people's comfort level, I think. It's important for uh, the storytellers not to overthink things. So once we conduct that pre-interview, I tend not to want to have them think about it too much until we're conducting the actual interview. Unless some other stories bubble up in between, they can write those down, or maybe they're working on getting some photos and other things together. But other than that, I try to keep it spontaneous for folks. So as far as having folks feel comfortable on camera, one of the things I feel that I, I really specialize in and that, that has always worked very well is that we, we really work at creating a safe and comfortable space so that our storytellers feel very comfortable speaking to me. We make it fun, really. It's a, a, quite often the first time a storyteller has seen how a, how a professional video is set up and shot. So, so that's always interesting. I work with great people, so the crew is very friendly, so they get to meet a very nice uh, group of people and understand that we're there to make them look and sound you know, their very best. So an important thing, I think, also is, is to let the storyteller know that they do have some control over the situation. For instance, if they're uncomfortable with an answer that they're, they're giving me, they can just tell me and uh, we'll stop and start again. 
another uh, area where they have controls, I, I, let, I, I let folks know if I'm interviewing you, you can take a break at any time, just let me know. So if, if you need to get up and stretch your legs, bathroom break, whatever it is, just tell me and, uh, and, and you know, we'll accommodate you. It's a conversation. It's not an interrogation. So I think folks know by the time we sit down that I care what, uh, very much about what they have to say, and that contributes to their, their comfort level uh, immensely. I'm just curious, do you allow them to do certain things that are comforts for them, like having a cup of coffee on the side or anything like that? Sure, yeah. Um, whatever makes you comfortable, uh, you're certainly welcome to have. It doesn't matter if it shows up on camera or not. Uh, if you're a coffee drinker and that's how folks, you know, that's an aspect of you that folks are aware of, sure, put your coffee cup on the <laughs> table. It doesn't really, it, it doesn't really matter. We want folks to be natural. We don't want them to feel inhibited. Quite often, we'll set up an interview where someone's sitting in a chair, you know, whatever their comfortable chair happens to be. I tend not to go with really huge high back chairs or anything like that because I don't want folks disappearing into them. And it's also nice to see the area around them, uh, the house or the office or whatever location we're using is also a part of their story. So we want to show that off as well. But I uh, interviewed a, a, a lady up in um, Idaho. Uh, we interviewed her and her husband. And her husband sat in a more traditional manner, a nice, comfortable armchair. She said, I, I can't sit like that. I'm not, so how do you normally sit? Well, she, you know, she likes to like curl up on the couch, her legs underneath her, that sort of thing. So okay, if that's what you are comfortable doing, that's what we do. So that's what we did. Oh, wow. So yeah, we'll, we'll work with you. We, whatever, whatever makes you feel comfortable is what we'll do. Very cool. Well, I want to go back to the Italian lady mm -hmm. or the lady who immigrated from Italy and mm -hmm. had not worn makeup. I know that people look quite different on camera. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to make them look their best, but still look rather natural and what people will remember how they look like? Right, right. Cameras, uh, for those folks who, who don't know, uh, see the world differently than the human eye does. Uh, the human eye is very adaptive and it doesn't matter the different kinds of light sources you've got in a room. The eyes work it out and the brain, but cameras aren't like that. So you have to pay very close attention to the kinds of light you're using and exposures and, and that sort of thing. So you're right. People don't look the same naturally as the, uh, on camera as they would to your eye. And uh, so one of the ways we deal with that is through the use of uh, makeup. Makeup artists are, are great people. I, I really believe in using them as often as I possibly can. Uh, the idea behind makeup, it's not heavy, you know, you're not going to come out looking like a circus clown. It's not that kind of makeup. It's, it's light um, and it's really just meant, however we're exposing the shot, whatever kind of light we're using, they adapt to that. And so it's just meant to make you look like you, <laughs> you know, and make you look fresh and natural on camera. And sometimes during the, you know, you may brush your face uh, during the course of an interview and some people might sweat a little bit. So once they do the initial makeup, a makeup artist is always looking at the shop. So if they see something uh, when we take a, a break or they may signal me and we'll stop and they say, you know, there, oh, there's a little moisture underneath the lip or whatever it is. And we'll touch that up and then we'll, then we'll keep going. So it's one way a makeup artist is really terrific. And they make people feel pampered. I have to say, even, even the men have enjoyed the process. Really? Uh, makeup people are quote-unquote people people. And 
So the nice thing is that from my standpoint is once we've come in, uh, we can get the makeup going and I'm working with the crew maybe and we're getting uh, deciding where we're going to shoot and how and that sort of thing. During those times when I'm not able to be with the storyteller, there's the makeup artist. And so they're talking them up and chatting them up and kind of warming them up and, and having the fun with them. So, uh, so makeup artists are, are just, uh, they're terrific. And I'm a big believer in that. Uh, another thing we do, we, we do is wardrobe, I guess you'd call it. You know, we, we always like to see what options we have in terms of clothes. So we'll get together and maybe look at several different outfits and see what might work best in terms of, you know, a person's complexion or then working with the the room we happen to be in, the wall colors and whatever that uh, that happens to, to be. So uh, so clothing is another thing. And then backgrounds, you know, we want to make sure we're in a nice room, uh, lit well. You know, it's possible we may put in some items into the shot that relate to the person's lifetime or the subjects they're talking about. So all of that goes into uh, making people look uh, and sound their best. So I know people in the podcast can't see you, but as I'm sitting here, I can see that you're waving your arms, you're cocking your head this way or that way while you talk. Um, what kinds of advice do you tell people when they are on camera now telling their story and they may have certain mannerisms or movements that they might want to do, or that is natural for them? That's pretty simple. I just, I just want people to just be, you know, Elena, just be yourself. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want people thinking that they have to sit there stiffly and not move their arms, that's, that that's going to interfere with something. Uh, no, just uh, whatever mannerisms you have are what your family is familiar with. So we want to have that come across on camera. So, you know, if, if like me, you're a bit of a hand talker, that's fine. We all know that as we're maybe formulating a thought, your gaze may drift. Um, maybe you may glance at the camera once in a while. It, it's, it's really no big deal. So don't obsess about those things. Just be yourself. And what about voice? I know that people who are on camera train their voice to have a, a good pleasing tone. Is that something that you deal with with storytellers? Again, it goes back to just being yourself. So however you normally speak, that's how we want you to speak on camera. Well, the microphones we use are very sensitive, and we generally have a, a sound technician there listening in in case, you know, a plane flies overhead or something interferes with the sound that makes us need to start over or something. But uh, you don't have to emote, you don't have to uh, orate, you know. Um, <laughs> Just uh, however you normally speak is the way we want you to speak and in, in terms of just the quality and the tone of your voice and, and the sound level. There's no need to, to have to shout or anything like that. You know, the microphones are, as I said, they're, they're right there. So again, just speak like you'd normally speak. <laughs> very good, very good. I wonder if, because sometimes these interview sessions are longer than one would typically tell an average story, if people start droning on maybe or, or lose some enthusiasm in telling the story and how do you bring them back into being uh, more like a storyteller and not like you said a, a reciter of these stories? Luckily I haven't had too many droners <laughs> but sometimes it happens that you temporarily lose focus. Uh, what was I saying? <laughs> you know so that that can certainly happen during these these interviews uh, as well. Now I'm actively listening during the course 
of an interview. And if I find that someone is being overly repetitive, maybe, or really going off on a tangent or moving into an area that doesn't really serve the story or relate to the story we want to capture, I can always step in and redirect the conversation. Sometimes when there's more of an issue than that, where someone is really drifting off then I have to figure out, well, how, how do we address this? One example, she was elderly, and we were doing a, a rather extensive uh, interview one day, and she just started drifting into these other areas that didn't really relate to what we needed. And, and I could tell just by looking at her that, you know, I, another thing I do, and in addition to listening, I'm always focused on somebody's physical condition. So I can tell if someone's fading, for instance. And, and then I'll suggest that we take a break, have a drink of water, get up and walk around, whatever, whatever may work. In this lady's case, I knew she liked coffee. She said, how about we take a coffee break? I said, oh, she loves coffee. So we, the whole crew stopped and we went into the kitchen and we had our 10 minute coffee break and it perked her right up. And I decided that for the rest of the day, that would be the pattern. About every hour we'd stop, take a coffee break. And that kept her alert and focused and, and on track. So you do sort of act like a director in a sense that <laughs> you just try to keep things moving along and making everybody their best selves. Sure, absolutely. And when we're on site doing a shooting, my role is very much as a interviewer slash director. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so I understand that you do the pre-interviews to get storytellers thinking about what they want to say and how they want to say it. And I'm wondering if you do anything um, more spontaneous, like having a group of people telling a story from each of their perspectives, maybe like talking around the dinner table after dessert um, that many people remember in their families. So we have shot families shooting the breeze around a table, telling stories, that sort of thing, which can be a lot of fun. If there happens to be a, a particular activity, maybe it's a hobby or what have you, that uh, the storyteller is really known for, or really enjoys, we can certainly shoot them doing that particular activity. We've shot a you know, husband and wife playing golf, or we've uh, people walking along the beach, walking their dogs. And quite often I'll get ideas for those kinds of uh, elements during the pre-interview phases as I'm as I'm thinking about setting up the shoot and, and, and how we're going to proceed, I can suggest to a client, well, can we get these people around the table and have them chat about the childhood stories or whatever? It's always fun to be able to do something like that. It lends an extra dimension to the, to the video. Uh, sightseeing, we, you know, we talked about the folks in Italy. We would shoot the family members in various areas, you know, looking at churches and strolling through the streets. So yeah, that can be a lot of fun to do. And, and you know, we have certainly done a lot of that over the course of the years. Very cool. I would imagine that you get the occasional interview that just doesn't go well, not, not necessarily because of technical issues, but the person might be too nervous or they can't quite remember the story that um, you've agreed upon. Um, so what do you do in that situation? It hasn't been, luckily, uh, that much of a of an issue with me over the years, but it does happen occasionally where someone maybe forgets part of a story or has has some issues with memory. So that again is a, uh, where the pre-interview, the preparation, plays a critical role because I'll know most of that background information. So if someone's struggling uh, or has has just glossed over part of a story, we can always stop, and I can confer with them and say, well. 
maybe we want to try that again because I also want to make sure we include such and so. And then we'll, we'll try it again. Or if it's just, uh, if I don't want to break the stream of thought, I can just ask a follow-up question mm. once they're finished with the story to have them fill in that, that additional uh, detail. So that's basically how we would deal with that kind of a situation. And, and uh, remember, there's a reason that God created editing because, <laughs> you know, those, those kinds of mistakes, you know, they don't see the light of day in the, in the finished video. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. So it's not requiring a take two or take three or take 50 takes um, to get it right? No, I don't want to kind of hammer somebody over the head because then you, uh, you know, you lose that spontaneity and then they become self-conscious and, and nervous. So we do the best we can. I may occasionally about as directive as I may get, as, as, as I just mentioned, is bringing up some information that somebody may have forgotten or you know, asking a follow-up question. Or if I know that uh, if they lead into a story in a particular way, it's really going to help when I get to editing. I may, once we're done with a story, ask them to introduce the story in a certain way. Mm. It all began back in 1910, and we were here, and they were there, that sort of thing. And then they get into the main part of the story. It really helps sometimes to have that, because for the most part, um, in the final video, you don't hear my questions. Because really, in the end, the family doesn't know or care who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of switching gears. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that some people are inspired by what they do see um, on television. Um, To have a video that's a little bit of a documentary, um, that provides stories into context. So what else can you do to, to fulfill that desire? And how do you balance the context with the personal story mm. so that it doesn't, the personal story isn't overwhelmed by the historical context? Right. First of all, any visual or sound elements that we bring in are only brought in in service to the story, you know, to help support the story. So that's an important point. We're not there to kind of tell the story of Western civilization and then <laughs> and, and get a little blurb from you. You know, it, it's your story, so everything we do supports that story. The kinds of things we can use, there's a, there's a whole list, um, things like still photos, whether they're photos that the family has or archival photos, family videos, you know, or family films that can be transferred to video uh, format or have been transferred, those can be incorporated. That can be a lot of fun. Um, you know, when you're talking about dad barbecuing in the back and you've got old family films of dad barbecuing in the backyard, you know, that's always great to be able to show that sort of thing. Archival stock footage. If again, your stories relate to a particular world event and we can get footage of that event, that sort of thing. Maps are always very helpful, especially if you're telling a, if your story involves moving from one part of the country to, or from one country to another country, we can use maps to to show uh, that movement, newspaper and magazine clippings, things like yearbooks and diplomas, wedding announcements. If you've got, uh, say, awards of any kind that relate to what we're talking about, plaques, trophies, medals, what else? Uh, letters and journal entries. You know, you've, you've seen the technique used in some documentaries probably where you're scanning down a journal and you hear the voice of the person or, you know, an actor being that person. 
uh, we have done the same kind of thing. So, you know, we can do that. If you're a painter or, or if there's a portrait uh, that relates, you know, paintings, drawings, keepsakes, uh, childhood toys, really anything that's visual that helps support a story and help to enhance it and illustrate it that we can shoot or scan in some fashion we can, you know, we can use within, uh, within a legacy video. Sound, uh, music is we use commonly. Say if we start a chapter, I like to have a piece of music that evokes a particular emotion or, or, or an era. I license a very extensive stock music library. So we use music from that. It's, it's designed for productions, for video and film productions. And, uh, and we, we have uh, quite a lot of options. We don't generally use popular music because then you get into rights and having to pay for rights, which in some instances can be way more than the budget of the whole video. Yeah. So that's why we use the stock music. And occasionally, you know, a sound effect may be appropriate. If you're talking about starting the old Hudson, <laughs> you know, and, and we can get sound of that or, you know, a, a, a fellow was a B-17 pilot and so while he was describing a mission and fighters were attacking, we could, I was able to find appropriate sound. Or another gentleman had been uh, in the North Atlantic during World War II and where they were attacked by submarines, so we were able to get the appropriate kinds of explosions and things to help the, the footage come alive. Uh, so sometimes it's dramatic like that, sometimes it's subtle. But I've always been a big fan of sound and sound design, so whenever we can bring a little bit of sound in there to help enhance the story, we do that as well. We have samples of these various techniques on the Family Legacy video website. But also, I guess to close out the answer to this question, it's also important to understand when and how to use these visual and sound elements. Because there can be times when you're really better off not doing anything, just letting a storyteller speak and, and tell his or her story. One that just came to mind, uh, I interviewed a lady who grew up in the Philippines, and she was there during the Japanese occupation during World War II. And she and her family suffered mightily during that time, as a lot of people did. And they had uh, been living in Manila, they, and they had to abandon their home when the Japanese came in, and they were living in various villages in the jungles. After the Americans flushed out the Japanese and, and, and took over again, they caught a ride back to their house, not knowing what they'd find. Instead of the Japanese, there were American soldiers mm. bunking there. One of them gave her a can of peaches. When you think about, you know, what's the big deal? Well, put yourself in her situation. All the deprivation they'd been through and, and the fear and the terror. And then here was a simple act where this guy gave her a can of peaches and she broke up on camera. It was, it was still a very, very emotional uh, memory for her. And there's no way you want to try to cover that up with something. You, you couldn't, you have to let that play out. Mm. Uh, so that uh, so that the viewers uh, and especially her grandchildren could understand the impact of that. So and that comes with experience. So it's just a matter of knowing what to do when and then kind of how to balance those things. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so of course, some of the things that you just talked about is like the beginning part of post production, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, at some point, you've got everything you think you need, and you start 
editing and putting the video together. Is that the point where the client is out of the picture altogether or is there other things that the client might be able to contribute at that point? There can be definitely more things I may ask for once we get into post-production or especially once, say if, if particular stories uh, come up during the course of the interview that weren't part of the, the questions I created based on the pre-interview, there might be something new. And so I'll list that and say, well, we, I hadn't expected this subject. It, it just came up. And uh, do you have whatever, you know, photos or other images? So I may ask for some other material during the course of the post-production part of it. I generally, based on the pre-interview, will give uh, clients and the storytellers kind of a wish list of visuals. I'll go through my notes for the pre from the pre-interview and say, well, it would be great if we had this, 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 and this. And either they have it or they don't. I do like to have all the elements I need when I start editing. It's just more uh, effective in terms of uh, time management that way, but that it's not always possible. So thankfully, thankfully these days, because we have the technology we do, it's non what they call non-linear. So if I'm missing some elements from one part of a, a legacy video, I can at least go somewhere else and, and work on that part until I get the additional stuff I need from the client. Occasionally during the course of post-production, I may get a surprise from a client. I had a client call me as I was just finishing up a video and they said, oh, we're on this great family vacation. We've got these additional photos. Can I send them to you when you do something? Well, yes, okay. <laughs> if I haven't actually finished the production yet, then generally there's a way we can fit them in. I think I need to have folks realize too, though, if these kinds of things happen once a production is finished, you know, if I finish something and they've approved it and then they come back to me and they say, oh, can we add this or that or do another, another interview, then well, sure. But at that point, there's more cost involved. And even when a client is coming to me or a storyteller during the course of production with additional material, I, I do have to be a little careful that we don't get into a project creep situation. So that's why when we sign a contract, I make it clear that if the scope of the project changes, then I have a change order. It would be just a sheet that explains what they want to add or delete or whatever and, and how that would impact the price and the time frame if, if it does. And then once they sign off on that and we adjust the pricing, then we, then we move ahead and, and we make those changes. Because, uh, you know, we don't want to get into a situation where they start adding things. Mm. <laughs> then there's more work involved, but we're not getting compensated for it. So that's not a winning situation for... Uh, for us. So yeah, it's, it's, it's never too late. It all just depends on what it is and when it's coming into the process and, and that sort of thing. So Steve, I understand that you have a distinction between your client and the storyteller. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to explain that in service to this question. And that is, do you ever have clients who are so interested in the process that they want to be there and, and watch you do your work? Okay, well, first of all, the, um, the storyteller is whoever I'm interviewing who is telling me their stories. They can be the client, but they don't have to necessarily be. The client is the person who signs on the dotted line and, and who sends the checks, you know, who's paying for the project. Sometimes the storyteller is the client, they're paying for it and they're hiring me, and they're also the one I'm interviewing. Sometimes, like say in the case of uh, one of the children hiring me to record their parents, then the, they are the client and, and the parents are the storytellers. So, uh, so then I have you know, a couple of different audiences to, to satisfy. You know. 
It's not unusual for, say, other family members to want to be there during the interview, but I have to uh, kind of control that. I don't want them to inhibit the storyteller in any way. It's kind of a funny dynamic. The storyteller knows that eventually people in the family are going to be seeing this interview. But if they're right there watching and they see them, they might feel a little nervous. If there are family members that really want or need to be there, what I'll do is either very simply they can be in, in an adjoining room just listening. Or sometimes we've been a little more elaborate where uh, we, we had a family out in Michigan and um, there were a number of them there. And so we set them up in, an, in another room, but with an actual monitor and, an, and a speaker so that they could hear and see what was going on. Generally, folks don't need or want to be in the room with me while we're editing the piece. Uh, that can be, you know, the old cliche about watching grass grow or paint dry. If you're not really involved in the process, uh, it can be boring, <laughs> you know. So it, it's, it's really better off that they see the final product when I'm ready to, to show it to them. So let's say they do see the final product mm -hmm. and they don't like it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Yeah, well, luckily I've never been in a situation where they just wanted to throw the whole, <laughs> whole video out. That's never happened. And we do enough preparation and talking beforehand that we're all generally on the same page. They may be surprised about, uh, in a good way, about a lot of the things I've done, but luckily I've never had any real negative comments. The, usually the, the most we have to do in the way of changes or maybe there's a misspelling of a name for a person or a place. Once in a great while, I may misunderstand who somebody in a particular photo is, and so we have to change the label or change the photo. Those little things. Okay. The way we go about approvals these days is as I finish segments of a video or sometimes I'll wait till the whole legacy video is done, we'll post those online with a private link and then the family can look at them at their leisure and then give me their feedback. And I always specify that uh, I want to have one person as a point of contact when it comes to changes. Any changes or corrections uh, that I need to hear them from one person so that things don't get confusing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's the way the approval process works. And then when I get the, you know, if, if we don't need to, need to make changes, that's great. If we do, we make them and they get to see the changed version. And then once we get the final approval, we move ahead and make whatever kinds of copies it is they need. So everybody's happy with the video. And <laughs> mm -hmm. now you're giving them the final product. What is the client allowed to do with that final product? Uh, our videos are considered work for hire, which just basically means that the client owns them. They pay me to produce it and create it and distribute it in whatever form they need or want. And then that's it. I, I do archive all the files. So if at a later date they want to come back for copies and they want the copies to be in the same form as they got the originals, then you know, we're the ones to do that. But if, if they want to copy it themselves or post it somewhere or whatever, that they're free to do that. We talked about having samples on the site. And I do, if there's something in particular I think would be nice to have as an excerpt on our website, I, I will ask for permission to post those. I don't just post things willy-nilly. So uh, folks can be secure in the knowledge that uh, I respect their privacy and and if they, if they don't want me to do it, then I won't do it. Uh, that's all there is to it. <laughs> so the client doesn't have to worry 
um, also any more about things like copyrighted material or, or any of the things that you talked about before that they can put into um, a legacy video? I don't, I don't include anything in a legacy video that we don't have the rights to. Certainly if it's their own uh, material, their own photos and keepsakes or what have you, then that's not an issue. If we're using archival materials, then we definitely make sure that we have the, the rights to those. So sometimes there might be a little additional cost maybe for some of those items. But so, yeah, the short answer is yes. They don't, by the time we produce it, we have all the rights that we need, if we need to get them, and uh, they don't have to worry about that. Um, have you ever done more than one video for a family after they've seen a, a production? And does that allow you to maybe reduce the cost a little because you're re reusing some of the material that you did in the original video? Sometimes. Families have hired us to produce uh, several videos during the same production cycle. We've done that. And then we've also had repeat clients you know, where they, they come back to us and they want to have another project done. And so you can certainly uh, reuse some material if it's appropriate. Even sometimes within the same video, you can reuse material if it makes sense. It may or may not significantly impact the cost. It really depends on what it is. I don't have any more questions. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you covered this really well, and it's very interesting to hear the whole process mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying, we film videos. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome, Alina. My pleasure. And, you know, if anybody has additional questions, just give me a call. And that's it. I have to thank Elena Akoba for her insightful and thought-provoking questions, and I'm grateful to you for listening. I hope you found our discussion both informational and inspirational. <laughs> if you have a legacy video project in mind or some questions or comments to pass along, just fire off an email to info at familylegacyvideo.com. That's info, I-N-F-O, at familylegacyvideo.com. And don't forget to visit Family Legacy Video's website at familylegacyvideo.com where you'll find lots of information, including legacy video samples. I'm Steve Pender. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us in the Legacy Video Lounge. If you'd like to learn more about Family Legacy Video, feel free to stop by our website at familylegacyvideo.com. And remember, every family and everyone has a story. What's yours? What's yours?